Hey everyone, I'm Ian Skura. And I'm Emily Hickbutt. And welcome back to The Beat. And today's question is... What does it take to be a good coach? Uh, today we're going to be talking to five different coaches uh, spread out through different parts of the country to kind of find out what it takes to be a good coach in different really accomplished coaches' minds. Our guests are Azim Hussain, Nathan Digman, Jamie Luby, Sheldon Bostic, and Isabella Leon. Let's get into it. Yeah, let's just jump right in. All right, today we have Azim Hussain with us. Um, Azim played with UTSA for four years and coached for two of those years. He then went on to play and coach the Texas Cavalry for three years um, and won three USQ national championships with Cavalry. Um, he also coached the Austin Outlaws for three years, two as an assistant coach and one as the head coach, winning two major league championships um, in, as well. And he now coaches the Lost Boys with Jamie Luby, and he has two adorable sister cats named Buckets and Pepita, who, if you don't follow him on Instagram, he posts them all the time, and they're adorable. So, welcome, Azim. Thanks for having me, y'all. That, that was a fantastic intro. Oh, thank you. Um, so, yeah, so we just kind of wanted to bring you on and ask you some questions about your experience as a coach. Cause sure, sure. clearly you have a lot of really great experience there. Um, so... Ian, why don't you open up our questions? Yeah. Um, so the first question we wanted to dive into um, was how do you find the balance uh, or how do you balance the different aspects of coaching? Um, and here we specifically want to talk about individual player development versus on-pitch changes um, and kind of, yeah, how, how you navigate um, being able to let players grow and the team as a whole grow. Yeah, for sure. So I think... This really varies in USQ versus MLQ and obviously whatever team and setting you're on. I think with Cavalry, when we started back in World Cup 10, like when I joined them, um, it, it, it all started from practice, right? Like you go to practice once a week, then you'd have a skills practice. If you're in Austin, uh, like if you could make it out like once a week. And, and during both, during like skills practice, you'd work on specific things, whether it was looking for certain cuts and passes, uh, working on wrapping techniques, like whatever may be the case, mm -hmm. and see how that translated specifically to practice and like scrimmages during practices. Um, and then from there, whenever, whenever it came down to like game time situations, um, it really just came down to this like mindset of whatever we're doing, like whatever the coaching staff and, and the, the captains are doing, it's for the benefit of the team, right? So with Cavalry is really nice. Actually, with every team I've played for, it's been fantastic because there's been like, zero issues of ego for the most part. Um, it, it's really easy to like toss all that aside and come together and just like work together as a team um, <clears throat> and not worry about like playtime versus like, oh, like I've been to practice, like I've earned so much playtime. Uh, so, so mindset is like a big thing, right? And, like, and starting that from the top down. And then the other thing came down to kind of understanding the importance of games, uh, right? If it's USQ national finals, uh, and we're playing in the finals and it's really close. If I was the coach, I wouldn't put me in, right? And I think like everybody like understands, like everybody has this idea of like, oh, like I'm, I'm a good player, like I can do this, like I can handle this pressure. Mm -hmm. um, but 
there are, there are times when you're just like you understand when there are players that are just better than you and you you're okay with that right like it's once again a team sport and so in a situation where it's like the finals of nationals or MLQ finals it's like you're going to play specific lines that you practice at practice and it's all good but like the biggest thing is making sure during pool play for every tournament everybody gets this like fair chance this fair opportunity to have opportunities to not only shine but make mistakes and grow uh, and I think that's like the biggest thing. It's really easy, even if it's like a close like pool play game, whether it's against like a rival team, uh, whether it's just against like a community versus a, a college team. Uh, it's kind of understanding and taking this importance that no matter what the situation is, whether we're down three, whether we're up six, like my line's gonna go out, we're all gonna go play. And as the coach, it's it's really easy to just like help instill this like level of look, like your teammates trust you. You just have to go out there and, and do your best, right? Like we practice for this situation, things go wrong, we adapt, uh, and then you learn from your mistakes. And I think sometimes it's a lot harder, especially for like younger teams, because you just kind of want to win all the time that you don't want to be put in this situation of like, oh, maybe we shouldn't play like a worse player. But like that directly translates, like that growth directly will translate to them gaining experience in those games, which can then, they'll learn from it and then boom, come USQ national finals, they may step up and they may be that spark that you need. So it's kind of just really understanding the the importance of even making mistakes in regular pool play games throughout the season and even bracket play games throughout the regular season because at the end of the day, the, the only win that really counts is nationals, right? So mm-hmm. so taking every tournament as an opportunity to grow and instilling this like faith and confidence, the amount of tackles that I've missed or goals that I've left up or uh, like let up or even just balls that I've dropped, right? Uh, I'm sure I can't count them on one hand, but I don't remember all of them just because the rest of the team is like, yeah, like shake it off, no big deal, like we're back at it again. And that helped tremendously when it came to my personal growth. Uh, and it's just, that's just the case, like for Quidditch as a whole, as a team sport. Yeah, that's awesome. And so you talked a lot about national finals. Um <clears throat> When Cavalry was down five in the finals mm-hmm. of the 2019 Nationals, how were you, like, what were you thinking and how were you making adjustments with yourself coaching and the team itself as well? Yeah, so I'm going to preface this off um, by saying that I have magic pants, and so I was never really worried because I was wearing those. They're, they're magic <laughs> chinos. If anybody in the Southwest knows about those, like that, that's been a, a traditional thing that I wear. But on a more serious note, um, it we like we practice for those situations, right? So it's like whenever we're we're scrimmaging, it's never just like all right, like we're flat zero zero, or let's just like play for like fifteen minutes. It's always just like all right, our team's down three, our team's down five. They have quaffle, snitches on pitch. Like let's see what we can do. And so first of all, like we've been in situations like this at practice, and I still remember after we won and like we're talking the huddle once things have like calmed down. Like the first thing, I'm sure it was Augie who said it, or I don't, I really don't remember who it was. Somebody was just like, these are situations we practiced for. And so one, like a hundred percent, like that was it. Like we were used to like being in this mindset of like, okay, minus five, what do we do? Like, how do we play? Um, and two, we've been in situations where these players have, have gone through a lot, right? And like, there's nothing to lose. Like it's the finals. Um, and I think, uh, I know this was like, I think three years ago now or two years ago, something like that. And so I know the other, like, I know Heat had a couple of adjustments where they, like, changed out specific players. 
And I remember thinking that some of those players just didn't have a good chance to, like, warm up before snitch on pitch, right? Like, you just, like, sub them out because the rest of your team is tired. And it was just really easy to, like, capitalize on some mistakes that they made, right? Like, somebody was too close to the edge, you just push them out. Like, just, like, outsmarted them at specific situations. Uh, them not recognizing one would be a good opportunity to try and score versus, like, looking for beaters when snitch on pitch is happening. So I think once it came to that minus five situation, we're all just kind of like, all right, we've been here before. Like, we have zero things to lose. All you can do is, like, feed positivity from the sideline. And in terms of, like, adjustments, like, we had our game plan. Um, he did a great job in that, that first half of that game. Not going to lie, they had us in that first half um, and, and most of the second half. Um, but then we were just able to capitalize on some of their mistakes. Once we found some momentum, it was just really easy to step up. And I don't think anybody was ever worried about our own like personal like skill like nobody was just like oh man why am I not playing like I do like none of that was the mentality so I think that also really helped uh, and as a coach it's just really nice to kind of like have the bench do some of the heavy lifting in terms of like feeding information you know passing off like good positive messages like things to shake off whenever they're like breaks like long calls just rushing water out there and just like constantly reinforcing this, like, all right, we got this. We got to shape it up. We got this. We're never worried. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's. I still, I still dream about that that game. I think my heart rate monitor, like on my my watch, was just like, should we call the cops? Like, are you okay? Are you having a heart attack? Yeah, it was definitely very stressful um, mm -hmm. for everyone involved. And I like that you brought up the bench because I feel like that's something that people sometimes don't realize has such a big impact. Oh games. yeah, absolutely. Like, absolutely. The amount of communication coming off the bench um, on the teams. Like I, you, when I was on Outlaws, you coached and mm -hmm. it, there was so, like so much emphasis on that, like constant communication. Yeah. Um, which I think a lot of people forget about, like if your bench is being quiet, then it's not good. you're not helping the people who are out there on the field as much as you could. So I yeah. definitely agree with that. There's so many like things that go into winning a championship. It's not just seven players out on the field, right? And I think people sometimes forget that. Like it definitely like especially with cavalry, like we're blessed to have such fantastic players. Uh, obviously, Augie, Casey, Marty, Tyrell Williams, uh, Arian Godesey, uh, Aaron McBride, uh, like just. And definitely ones that I haven't named. Like, there's so many, even the unnamed players that, that deserve more love that are starting to break out uh, this year. It, it's just, like, there's so much you can be doing, right, for the team that, that that you can put out there reading when, like, the defense hasn't set up or there's no bludgers and, and passing that information along. If somebody's behind you looking for a steal, I know Arian loves to do that. Um and, and calling wolf calls or, or just like being attentive, right? And being in the moment uh, and helping out that way goes along. Like it just gets the job done. So that's less things that, that players on the bench or on the field have to worry about that like the coach has to worry about. And it, it just pays dividends for sure, as you can see from our track record. Yeah. Yeah, no, that that's definitely true. I think I agree with you and, and what Emily was saying. I think some of the most effective games i i've been in as different like whether it was for boston when playing for uh the riders in mlq or middlebury mm -hmm. in college um it was always when the bench was calling out like different 
or whether it was the unmarked chaser position or um, yeah. when there were fast break opportunities. And you just, you, you kind of gain that sense that like when your teammate teammates, even from the sideline are calling out um, like helpful instructions, then everyone's kind of firing on the same page. Yeah. Yeah. Um, great. So I actually think you've sort of answered our next question, but I'm, I'm just going to ask it anyways and see what other insights you have. Um, so what, what recommendations would you have for someone who's, who's new to coaching? Fake confidence. So hard. Like you are constantly going to feel like, <laughs> what if this is the wrong decision? Um, and I get like the pressure maybe a little different from like somebody who's just like a new program versus like, like my first year with cavalry is like, I'm, I'm working with all these like fantastic players, right? Like the goats of all time, Casey Irwin, mm-hmm. uh, like Hardy, uh, Augie Arian and them, uh, Tyrell once again was on that year. And it's just like every decision I was just kind of like, I, I felt like I had, I needed somebody else to like sign off on whatever I wanted. And I still remember, uh, I want to say it was maybe diamond cup or NM classic that year where Casey was just like, dude, like we trust you, like just, just do what you're doing. And it was like, okay, all right, that's fair. Uh, <clears throat> but I think so like step one is just like that, like you'll most likely be uncomfortable. Like there's always something that you can, that, that, that you're going to just second guess about it. And that's just the nature of coaching, I think in general. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other thing, or I guess the other two things is just like one, like you can always be constructive, right? There's never like a moment where you're, and I'm sure the Lost Boys will agree with this, is at least this season, especially this season, I was just kind of like never really happy with the win. Like, yeah, we won. Like, that was great. That was a tournament win. That was a game win. Like, whatever it was. Like, but it should never lead to complacency, right? You should always, like, want this, like, growth mindset of, like, all right, so we won, but how could we have won better? Mm-hmm. And make it constructive, right? Like, the worst thing you can do, not only in Quidditch, I think it's any sport, especially a team sport, is be really toxic about what's happening. And so whenever you're being constructive, whether it's to yourself, whether it's to your teammates, uh, it's like one, you're coming from a place of like positive growth. It's like, all right, how do we do better? I think we try X, Y, and Z. And then two, people are just more receptive to that versus like yelling at somebody else for not covering the right person, right? It's a sport. You'll learn, like you'll get over it. There's no need to, there's no need to be, to be poisonous about it uh, or toxic about it. And then the last thing is, is just kind of like, like as a coach, like I, I know, like I, I've been in situations where people are like, oh, it's cool, like you've won so much, but like I don't really do that much, right? It's like the players, and I think coaches kind of forget that sometimes, and so it's just kind of understanding like how your players react to you, uh, or like what they react to in a positive manner, right? Like one person being coached, like people are just different, and so so one thing that may work for one person won't work for somebody else, and so I think it's just like understanding that there are different tools that you can use. And to not be afraid to like change things up. And then my favorite thing, which is the power of the one-on-one talks, which is like after a game or or after a practice or whatever, instead of like calling somebody out in the group, just kind of like taking them aside one-on-one and like checking in with them, giving them advice, seeing what they thought the issue was and kind of reflecting in a smaller group like that versus just like an after like if you lose a game, like the worst thing is like, all right, what do you think you did wrong in front of 20 other people? It just sucks. Like most people aren't very comfortable with that. Um, but it's a lot easier to break down and really decompress and figure out where things went wrong in, in a smaller setting and, and learn and grow from that. 
Wow, awesome. Those are all such good like nuggets of wisdom. So really we are. really appreciate you coming on and like sharing them with us. I think like honestly, I like the stat that I feel like cavalry with Azim is like <laughs> undefeated in tournaments. I'm not hundred percent sure about that. But uh, I just feel like I'm trying you... to in tournaments in general. I mean, for nationals, for sure. Because, yeah, I guess World Cup 9, they bat out, was it the Sweet 16, I think, yeah. maybe? Um, and that was before I joined. And then we won the next three years, which was fun. Uh, I know that first year, we, we won every tournament but regionals. And then after that, I just, like, here and there. But I'll take the nationals track record of, of us winning. But once again, yeah. that was, like, man, my team made me look so good. All I do is hold a clipboard and, like, occasionally spit some wisdom and everybody else goes and does their job and it makes my life so easy yeah i appreciate y'all having me my instagram handle is at high self azim yeah if you want to see the awesome animals would recommend to follow yeah um, definitely yeah check thank that you out. so much yeah thanks thanks for coming on hello everyone our next guest on the episode is nathan dickman um a little bit about him before we jump into our, our questions. Uh, so he attended Marquette um, and was the coach there for two years um, before playing a year at Twin Cities Quidditch Club um, before then helping to found Boom Train. Um, and there he's been a coach for the last two years uh, in the in the club circuit. Um, and as well in MLQ, he's played for the Indianapolis Intensity for every iteration of the team and has coached for three different years on that team as well. Um, so yeah, welcome Nathan to the podcast. Happy to be here. Yeah. So our first question for you today is how do you balance the different aspects of coaching specifically, um, individual player development versus like on pitch changes and kind of making sure that you're addressing both of those with your coaching? Yeah. Uh, I think with, player development, you know, on an in-game basis, uh, it's something that should probably take priority, in my opinion, all season long, up until, you know, games that, games that could end your season, I guess, so to speak. So, um, you know, if, if you're in college game and, you know, regionals are a big thing, you want to be able to qualify for nationals, that's kind of a, a, a big step. Um, you know, that's one aspect where player development might take a little bit more of a backseat. And then obviously uh, at nationals, it's a little bit different. But everything outside of those scenes, I would say player development is really the only reason why you're at tournaments. That might be a little bit of a radical view. You know, uh, a lot of people would say, oh, you want to show up and win at every tournament that you go to. Um, but I am not sure if I follow that, that philosophy. I think, you know, the most important thing, if even even if you are a competitively minded team, you're not going to reach your goals unless you uh, really round out your roster and are kind of developing your next wave of players at all times. And that helps with, with engagement all the way through too. It helps, you know, foster a good team environment. If, you know, everybody's getting opportunities and they're able to show up and know that um, their personal development and their development as a part of the team is is a priority. It makes everybody a little bit more incentivized to show up. Balancing that with you know on pitch changes, we're not gonna 
change a lot of the st- we, we typically don't change a lot of the stuff that we're doing mid-game. Um, I know sometimes it actually infuriates the players on the teams that I coach um, because we'll co- go into a, a game and have a particular look that we just want to do in, in that game. Um, I know there was so there was a game that Boom Train lost to uh, Gambits a couple years ago now. At Hero, the first Heroes vs. Villains, second Heroes vs. Villains, I think. First time Boom Train was there, where we were just running a defense that the way we were running it, we had absolutely no shot at stopping their offense. And <laughs> I essentially said we're just going to stick with it the rest of this game because the fact that we're not running it right is is just we're, we're going to be able to learn from the film and know why it's not working after the fact. So we were just kind of getting reps in a game that we didn't, re- we weren't going to win because of the strategic choice, but we were going to learn from it and get better from it. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. The, the on-pitch changes is, isn't something that's necessarily a priority. It's just kind of all throughout the season. The priority is just what, will, what decisions will help us right now that will put us in the best, deci- best position come, you know, nationals or championships or, or, or whatever that might be and so then when you would if you get to those stages then like later in bracket play and national say is that are those the type of situations where you would maybe be more willing to switch things up in like a mid-game type of scenario yeah certainly um i think that's when you're a little bit quicker to pull an audible change the the game plan that you had going in um whether it's strategically or with lines or whatever um because at a certain point you know it's this is it right there's games where you know this is the season on the line that said i think there's an element of being confident in what you have and not being too quick to to make too many many changes on the fly and and Mm -hmm. being confident in in your own structure or strategy or whatnot but as long as when it comes to kind of the lack of player development at those key tournaments i think the, the most important piece is that you have set really, really clear expectations for everybody. You know, this is your expected role. This is what we expect to happen, but we don't know what's going to happen. You know, there might be a situation where they show a look that we're not expecting and you might not get the minutes that you're expecting, or you might not be expecting to get a lot of minutes and somebody else goes down with an injury and things change a lot. So just kind of setting clear expectations and having those conversations makes it easier from a player development standpoint. You know, if they, they know that, you know, at at nationals, for example, the priorities changed a little bit. Um, and then people typically have a little bit better idea of, of knowing what to expect. Gotcha. Yeah, very cool. Um, so I know you mentioned film briefly, and I also remember reading that you once spent a very long time analyzing a single play. So how do you kind of use film to grow um, your team as a coach and to develop strategies for specific teams? Um, Film in general is kind of tied with statistics for us. Um, when, uh, say, I'll use Indie Intensity last summer as, as an example, because um, that was kind of the, the standard of what we would hope to do. Um, so we had a Super Series against uh, Detroit and Cleveland to start off the season. There's film of all of those games, all on YouTube. Um, we go back after the game. I usually watch each game three to five times in the like next week or so. And then um, what we do is film 
like review where whether it'll be me or somebody else uh, doing a kind of a recording with annotations of like this is what you should have done on this play or this is what went well on this play and sometimes it is going over you know a, I would say a 30 minute game usually takes like 90 minutes something like that um, and just going through the games like that is, is one step and then the statistics is the other part where we're trying to keep track on our end of uh, specific things that work or don't work against particular sets you know this qualifying line was plus or minus XYZ number in this set against whatever so just like hypotheticals there understanding who plays well together and you know what sets were working what you know what was helping us get blood control back etc you know you can go as deep as you want with it very cool huh. yeah I guess through your experiences coaching on all these different levels slash like leagues, I guess I'll call them. Um, what recommendations would you have for someone who's maybe new to coaching? Um, whether that's on like a club MLQ or a, a college um, and probably most likely college level. What I tell everybody who's doing something that they're uh, new to or un comfortable with or maybe you are comfortable and you're just trying to like build your confidence um, is just be vulnerable and put yourself out there and don't pretend like you know everything um, kind of the recipe for disaster is somebody who comes in as a coach and is like oh yeah we're going to do everything my way and you got to follow this when you're not super confident or you're you're, you're not 100% sure of the exact way to do things um, you're not going to know everything what to do but in being vulnerable um, and really admitting that you have some faults, uh, admitting that you have weaknesses, and interacting with the team in a way that shows that, I think, is actually a really big positive. You know, admitting, hey, guys, uh, this is something that happened in the last game. I'm not sure what, what we should do about it. What do you guys think? Um, no matter what level of coach, I think that's just kind of the, the way to foster good discussion and good camaraderie and good team culture, um, which are really uh, critical parts of, of any team. So, you know, whether you're at the, the college level, club level, MLQ, I think that that's kind of the the, the formula uh, if you're a little bit, bit newer. Um, and, you know, depending on the level of competitiveness with the team that you're a part of, and, you know, that can vary within each of those levels. Again, that comes with just kind of communicating with your team and saying, hey, guys, what do you, what do you want? Uh, from this team is if you're coaching the team to be hyper competitive and they everybody wants to you know just show up work out have a good time show up to some tournaments drink some beers like <laughs> you're not you're not like on the same page with them and that's not going to work and I've done that and, and it's failed so I think you know being 100% on the same page with the, the people that you're coaching and what what you're doing in your role is pretty critical at the end of the day coaching is just you're kind of like a, a servant leader in a lot of ways you're, you're kind of fulfilling the wishes of the masses so you have to understand what 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 people want from it um and just kind of follow through and and lead in a way that um, is conducive to to what people are looking for from the, the quidditch that they want to play yeah i think that's very important because i know i've definitely been on teams where like there have been different expectations of what the team is going to be I'm specifically just thinking of a year in Tufts where like some of us want to be really really competitive 
and wanted to put in the work, but like the whole team wasn't necessarily on that same page. And it definitely, like, we still had a really good time and it was still a fun season, but definitely like more struggles that if we had all been like, okay, what do we all want um, from this season? So I think that's a really great point. Yeah, it's especially hard at the at the college level because um, I think when club teams or MLQ teams are just kind of recruiting or branding themselves, et cetera, you usually have a pretty darn good idea of what the team's goals are and like what, what they have in mind for, you know, what does this team want to accomplish? Whereas a club or a college team, it's, you know, you're, you're kind of the product of whoever you recruit. Mm -hmm. You know, most teams are, uh, okay, we've got these 16 players. This is what we've got. You know, you yeah. can't just like be selective of the people that, uh, that fit with what, what you're looking for. Um, so I know that that was a huge challenge when I, when I was in college, cause I'm very like competitively minded. I don't really think there's a point of playing any sports if you're not trying to win. Um, and that wasn't the, the way that the rest of the team saw it. And in a lot of ways I was just like constantly compromising and it didn't work out that well a lot of the time. Cause I wasn't uh, always leading it in a way that was like conducive to what the team was looking for. I was always trying to, get people to be more competitive than they wanted to be, which is just kind of a, a formula for disaster. I can learn from my failures. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And so I guess coaching then, you, you've had the chance to coach kind of on, on all three of the levels I mentioned um, in college, club, and MLQ. And so I was wondering if you could touch more on the differences you've noticed between coaching on those levels. Um, I know you've already kind of talked about the – difficulty in kind of balancing whoever you recruit in college. Um, but are there any other specific differences you've noticed between those levels? I don't know. I, I think it, it depends on who you're, you're working with. I have had kind of the, the privilege at all diff all of those levels. It's been a lot of the same people. So whether it's boom train or Indian intensity, that, that's a lot of the same people. Um, so MLQ has been just a very similar experience to um, club coaching. Um, college is, was its own beast um, because the, the team that I was coaching in college wasn't uh, necessarily very competitive. Uh, we only went to nationals my senior year, if I remember correctly. So it was just kind of a different world um, than from when I started uh, being a part of an intensity and boom train and whatnot. Um, so the level of competition was a big change for me, but that's not necessarily the case for everybody, obviously, where... Um, you know, there's certainly a lot of college programs that are, you know, out there competing for a title. Um, one thing that I think is really different, though, between club and MLQ is just the, the season structure and the way in which you have to conduct your practices, so to speak. Um, for example, in MLQ, so we have like a really detailed system that everybody needs to know before you can like be competent enough to play in a game, to be honest. Um, yeah. Like uh, it's last year we had, uh, we were kind of the opening weekend with that super series that I mentioned before. Yeah. And it was kind of a sprint. We did like, I want to say three weekends in a row, nine hours of practice each weekend. And we were still not really ready for the first series. Um, and those games matter, which makes it really hard in, in the MLQ setting to just kind of like get everyone up to speed in a really short amount of time that it just constantly feels like a sprint. And that's just the nature of MLQ is the season's really short. And even by the end of the season, um, I wouldn't say that we 
have ever really in any of the seasons I've coached in MLQ kind of perfected or gotten where to where we wanted to be uh, strategically just because you're constantly like bringing in new players into the fold who, you know, the system is just totally new to and it just takes time. Whereas with the club, you can pick your own schedule and tailor it to, um, you know, the de- level of development that you want to see. So, for example, last year with Boom Train, we kind of spent the whole season building up with increased level of competition, similar to like a, and by last year, I mean, I guess the first season, but similar to like a college basketball team where they kind of play the cupcake schools at the beginning of the season as the players are getting familiar with each other and building chemistry and building confidence and whatnot. Um, so, you know, that's kind of how we were able to tailor our schedule a little bit. Um, and then in the spring, it got more and more competitive and whatnot. Whereas this year we had a group of people who was, were a little bit more familiar with our strategy. And so we didn't quite have to um, have the, so many tournaments for everybody to get familiar with each other. So I guess just on, on the club level, there's just so much more flexibility in terms of how you can do things based on uh, the group that you have and like what you need to teach them. All right, so our next guest is Jamie Luby. She started playing in 2009, so she's been playing for 11 years. Um, She played four years at UCLA and was a part of that World Cup six semifinalist team. She also founded and co-captained the Wizards of Westwood during this time. She then went on to found and coach and eager Quidditch um, and played there for a year as well. Um, She spent the year of 2017 playing for teams with the acronym LAG. So she played for the Gambits and the Guardians, and she now plays and coaches for the Lost Boys um, as well. So welcome, Jamie. We're so glad to have you. Thank you. Uh, Ironically, I am currently wearing a Los Angeles Angeles Guardians jersey because I once did a jersey trade with Justin Bogart. yeah, you are. <laughs> I love that. That was Wings up. probably one of my, no, that was one of my favorite teams to ever be a part of. So much fun. Like, so much talent on that squad. And just everybody was so fun-loving and wanted to win, but at the same time was really social and excited to be there. So it was great. Yeah, those are definitely the best kinds of teams where you're like, let's do well, but then let's also have fun. Yeah. Um, yeah. So our first question um, today is, how do you balance the different aspects of coaching, uh, specifically individual player development versus like on-pitch changes, and how have you kind of addressed those? Yeah, so I would say that the first thing for me when I'm thinking about working with my team is what are my skill sets, what are my strengths? And that plays into how I balance all of the different roles. I have to put out there um, that we actually had two coaches on Lost Boys this season, myself and Azim Hussein. And we actually, because we had the two of us working together, we could focus on different things. And so while whenever I needed to, I would step in to work with certain things like strategy and on-pitch changes and um most of that was Azim's responsibility. And then the other aspect 
of the typically what I worked with was those individual player development pieces and also communication with a lot of the team members about certain decisions that leadership had made. So I think there are a lot of different pieces to coaching and the more you can hone in on what you are good at as a coach, the better you will do. So I realize that's kind of probably doesn't quite answer your question because you're asking how do I balance everything? And, and the truth is like, I, I look at what I'm good at first and then I lean on other people to, to pick up what I'm not as talented at with. Um, yeah, and I think that's a really important thing for any coach to recognize is like you have to balance everything by looking at your team and seeing who is skilled with those specific things that you may not be as skilled with. I'm really good working with players one-on-one. -on -one. I love to teach people like fundamentals, basics. I love to help them get better at agility. I love to help people improve their conditioning. I love to watch individual players and tell them how I can think they, I can, that they can tweak their play style slightly. I tend to get hyper-focused on individuals. And then when I need to balance other things into it, I lean on everybody else who might have a little bit more experience with that than I do. Yeah, sure. I think that is something that is really important. Um, because like, as much as you have your like team team, you also have your coaching team. And I think having some, like we talked to Azim as well and having people who are really good at the thing that they do is going to make your whole team better. Like I know if I was a coach, which I've never done, I would not want to be the person who was like making cuts because I just know that's not my personality. But I think like working on skills is really important too. So I think just like having those different opinions is so, so important. Yeah, when, I mean, this past season, we had a really competitive roster and there were a few moments where we did have to make some cuts that were really difficult to make. And those are something I would say that you really need your full leadership squad together with. Like that's not a one person job. And the more you can balance that among the rest of your leadership, the, the better that decision will be or come across to the person that's getting cut or whatever it might be those are tough um yeah um i guess just elaborating a little bit more on what you're saying with kind of delegating and dividing up responsibilities um so uh how how do you usually approach kind of uh, assessing the team you're working with and finding the right people to kind of fit the right um instructional roles is that something you try and do kind of before the season officially starts? And then like, how, how do you kind of handle that in a season more like an MLQ where there's not necessarily a lot of time <laughs> to like get those things sorted out? Yeah. So, so like, when do you prioritize uh, making those kind of decisions? Yeah, that's, um, I think that's something that's both ongoing throughout the season and needs to be identified as best as possible at the beginning of the season. I think the way that I try to typically do that is I look for who the natural leaders are on the squad and I try to build a rapport with that person. And then when I have that rapport, even if it's 
not even necessarily like a coach to player type of relationship building some sort of a relationship with that person helps to bring in those conversations later like let's say i've got a player for example who everybody looks to everybody goes to to ask questions um they're talented on the field they um you know they talk well with others and they are able to communicate they communicate well with others <laughs> um and i notice that then i can approach that person build a little bit of rapport with them and then from there i think it's about talking with them to see where the the group is at hey so and so how do you think person a is doing with this skill do you think they're doing all right do you think they need more work on this how do you feel when you're on the field with them and so i think that starts early off or early on in the season and then as you continue to build throughout the season you can kind of put the responsibility on those people to let you know when things need to be adjusted if you're not noticing them and then at the same time you can really focus in on individual players that you know need work so for me i might have one person that i go to all the time and say hey how do you feel this is going this is great this is not so good they communicate with me and while that's happening while they're paying attention to the field i'm overlooking it person A who I know really needs to work on their aggressive stance when they're throwing feet. Or I go over and look at person B and I say, okay, this person really needs to work on being a threat on defense. Or, you know, so whatever the, the different individual players might need, that's what I try to focus on. Um, did that answer your question? I'm sorry. Yeah, I think so. Okay. Um, so you were talking a lot about individual player development, and that's something you're obviously very good at. Do you have any specific drills um, that you have to build specific skills? I think a lot of it starts off with watching the players and seeing what the players need. Um, basic fundamental things are super important for every player. Learning to throw the ball, learning to catch the ball with two hands while you're moving. Learn, like learning to have a presence on defense, learning to build field vision, those that starts to get more complicated as you go up. But so first you have to identify what that player needs. But did you have a more specific focus on that? Like what, what kinds of drills? Um, so I like say I'm not very good at catching, which is true. Most of the time when I can try and catch a bludger, it's like 50, 50 or not even 50, 50, very low probability. And when I do, I'm very excited. Um, <laughs> So what recommend, like if I wanted to work on my catching, what would you recommend I do? So I would get someone who has a really strong throwing arm and who's also good at working with you. And I would partner up with that person. And I would tell you guys to, actually I would start off with you guys just throwing the ball back and forth to build a little bit of that catching, throwing rapport, I guess. Um, and then from there, as you get more comfortable catching and throwing just as if you're passing the ball back and forth, um, then I would suggest that each of you try to beat the other person. And I would almost suggest with this go partner with someone who has a definite skill advantage over you. I think you learn the best when you play with players who are simply better than you. 
Um, that is how I wanted to improve. I always picked the player that seems to be much more talented than I was, and it helped. And from there, uh, I would have that person start to attempt to really try to beat you. Um, but as you were doing that, I would try to make sure as a coach that I'm next to that group and I'm making little adjustments. So I would be watching how you're catching, um, some things that I look for when I'm trying to teach someone to catch a beat. And I learned this from Chris Ito. Um, you always want to watch the throwing arm as the throwing arm comes up just before it rotates over the shoulder that's when you want to start to crouch down and look for the catch. And you almost kind of quickly squat down, keep your back straight. You look at the ball and you keep your arms open. And as the ball comes in, close up on the ball. Um, and then you just practice that over and over and over again. A lot of this stuff is just repetition. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much. And mm -hmm. once I have, a bludger that is not destroyed by my dog. I will get oh. back to where she got it. She she got a hold of it and just like chomp. And oh it was no! My bludger. It was really no. sad. I'm sorry. It's okay. It was a sacrifice yeah. to the dog, to the to the Quidditch gods. So, in terms of beater positioning, if you were trying to train someone on that. Um, what are some drills you might try for something like that? Okay. Um, so I think I would place someone. Okay, so the, the offense versus defense 2v2 beater drill is a good one for positioning. Um, and it's, it's just two beaters versus two beaters. Um, there are defensive beaters that are sitting at the hoops. Um, and they can obviously, they don't have to sit right on the hoops, but they act as a defensive position uh, against the hoops or closer to the hoops as if they're defending an actual offense. Then you've got two offensive beaters um, without control. Defense has control. Uh, one offensive ball carrier, and then one offensive receiver who can receive that quaffle and then ideally score. Um, the goal of the drill is for offense to score and for defense to stop the, um, the goal. With defense or with this drill, defense does have a beater advantage, but offense does have more of the, uh, well, offense does have the threatening power of the quaffle, which gives them a slight um, I don't want to say advantage, but it, it makes them a threat, right? And what you want to do with the positioning with the beaters is, I, I would say with a new beater, I would almost suggest that they swing wide as they go up on offense. Typically when you're training beater positioning, um, if I have a player who needs to work on that, I'm going to put them in the offensive role first um, and have them learn what it's like to go up on offense on an isolation uh, so that they can kind of watch the field as they do so and then adjust as they start to become more comfortable with it. But yeah, I typically say positioning beaters want to swing wide to start until they get more comfortable with like 
running closer to a defensive feeder of the ball. Um, and then at one at some point, I would take that newer beater who's trying to learn positioning, and I would put them into defense. And uh, I would say that defensive, I mean, I would put them with someone who really knows what they're doing defensively. And I would talk about a seesaw, how you've got when one side moves up, the other side moves back toward the hoops. Uh, when one side is more threatening, the other kind of watches their beater partners back a little bit. Um, and when they start to master that or get more comfortable with that, I think I would probably let them know that that doesn't quite have to be a line straight up and down on either side, right, left. It can be a little bit more of a, a semicircle in front of the hoop uh, where that beater who's pressing up can press to the middle as well. And then it's, it's that seesaw idea, but with now a semicircle. Yeah, I, I think part of positioning and learning positioning is also playing with people who are more talented than you and just seeing what they do and, and listening to them and learning from them. I think that is, that's the biggest part of learning beatings. You need to be with someone who's more talented than you are. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, that's great advice. Sometimes it can be frustrating to like when you first get in those situations because um, it, it can be overwhelming. But I think once you once you stick with that and and take what you can and learn from the situation, like you're saying, um, I think it really helps players grow grow quickly. Absolutely, um, that frustration piece is hard to overcome sometimes. Yeah, and so I guess not just switching from players developing then to uh, a coaching lens. Um, what recommendations would you have for someone who's new to coaching? Yeah. So first off, don't beat yourself up when you make mistakes because you will make mistakes. Coaching is really hard and um, it takes some time to learn. And then I would also say as a newer coach, really lean on, like I've been saying kind of this whole time, lean on the people who know what they're doing. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's the idea of just watching film isn't going to help you, but watching film with someone who understands the game better than you do is going to help you. Um, the idea of, you know, when, when you're sitting there leading your team, obviously you have to be that presence of guidance for your group, but it doesn't mean that your guidance can't be dependent on the people that you work with. I mean, I lean on Azim, on Azim all the time. He's an incredible coach. He knows strategy like the back of his hand. He thinks strategically, analytically. That's something that I, as a coach, haven't quite developed yet. But I know I'm really good at that individual player piece. So I, I focus on that. And I work with individuals. And I lean on Azim when I can. And um, Azim hasn't, you know, always been able to show up at practices all the time because he's just, he lives far away. When he's there, he is a huge resource and he does amazing things for our squad. And our, our team knows that he can't always be there. And we, we agree to that. But when, when he's not there, then he's able to lean a little bit on my presence 
there and we're able to communicate back and forth about what the team needs and is yeah so it, it's being a newer coach just lean on your squad look at what they need and also be flexible with them i think the worst thing that you can do as a coach is to um have a heavy-handed like my way or the highway approach i've seen many coaches try that before and it just crashes and burns i mean if if you have a coach that's trying to force their own idea on what a team should be it's not going to work out i mean it, it really is about being flexible and being ready to change your ideas and change how you approach the group um, in order to be successful yeah i feel like that's something the lost boys have always been really great at um is like taking the players that are on the team and making the system fit what they have as opposed to trying to fit specific players to a like, given system. Like knowing this is the group of people that I have this year, this is what we're gonna work with on them. Um, so I think it, you could definitely see that in the Lost Boys. So thank I think you and the team are doing a really good job. Thank you, God, he's amazing. I just have to put it out there. Like he's wonderful to work with. So next on our our show today, uh, we have a guest, Sheldon Bostic. Um, Sheldon played four seasons with QC Boston, winning a national title with the team uh, in USQ Cup 9. Uh, played two years with the Boston MLQ team uh, and was assistant coach uh, the two years after that for the Boston MLQ team and has been coaching Brandeis Quidditch uh, for the last four years. So welcome to the show, Sheldon. Oh, thanks for having me. Definitely. Yeah, I know I'm so excited to talk to you about this because I know, like, you have such a good perspective on this, on coaching in general. So um, our first question today is, how do you balance the different aspects of coaching, specifically individual player development um, versus, like, on-pitch changes? And how have you kind of addressed that with the teams that you've coached? Hmm. So player development is, I think, one I focus on. I prioritize on it more than anything else because the quicker, especially for newer players, the, the quicker you can get fundamentals down and for them to pick up the basics, then it just brings up the team from, from a ground level. And then you can tweak and do all changes from there. Um, as far as changes to the sport, I think we we all have a have a, a good advantage seeing two different leagues, and usually the one league adopts from the other, so you can kind of implement changes easier. So that that one's easy. It's just player development is the one you want to get on from the beginning because that will make or break a season. Yeah, and what are some things you do to like? develop your players do you have any fun drills or anything um really it's more observation and seeing where i can implement tweaks um for the most part everybody well, i harp on everybody fundamentals and from there it's just tweaking bits and pieces that they need to put together a complete game and then finding roles after that <laughs> 
I mean, so you, you're also a coach of a college team. And so then, like, when you're bringing in totally new players, then what's what's your approach? So you said, like, if you have someone who has already, like, sort of started to play Quidditch, you, you look for ways you can help develop their skills. But what about someone who's kind of just starting the sport? E- that's a good question. Even easier, because for me, a person that's totally new to the sport doesn't bring habits. So that I, I believe, me personally, that they pick up the game a lot quicker because they're learning completely from scratch. So it helps a lot. And this goes on to something further down the line. Season two, once you have your veterans, you'll find out who your leaders are. They can kind of help you out in keeping your message going with the other other returning players. And that the way I can focus 100% on getting the new players up to speed. It's, it's, and it's a challenge, too, as well, because in the Northeast, we have that super, super, super short time frame before our regionals. So it's very important to have a support structure there in order to step over to focus in that direction as well. Yeah. And so how have you kind of seen Brandeis grow during the four years that you've been coaching there? Oh, yeah, that, that that to me is the most rewarding part of the whole journey when I started coaching. So first observations and when I first arrived, what you find out is that your the team as a whole can be very competitive. It's just one or two things that we lacked in the beginning, and that was basically structure and confidence. Confidence to me is key in any sport like it to have confidence just puts you at a a better level mentally to be able to perform on the field and to execute and then from there it was just watching them grow i mean you you have different leaders that would step up and take different roles and then you'd put them in positions to where you could build confidence and as the confidence grew um quicker decisions could be made and you can implement more com- complex offenses and strategies. And where we've gone from day one to now, it's like anything that we can create and implement, I have full confidence that the team going forward will be able to do that. And it's been really, really rewarding seeing that. And then individual players from a confidence standpoint, having doubts about their ability and then putting them in those positions to where they can be successful and then watching it happen and then watching their reaction to that is that's the best feeling in the world. Yeah, I know Brandeis is a team that I've seen grow a lot over the four years, just like from a distance. I know that if you look at the team as a whole they just like look so much more confident when they play and they truly believe that they compete can compete with any team that they're playing which is awesome and i know a lot of like what you have instilled in them is that like belief in themselves yes yeah that's number one it's always believing yourself in and you see it it's like when things happen in a game there'll there'll be sometimes we'll let a goal and you'll you'll see the frustration it's like oh we missed that let's go get it next time and that's what was lacking from years prior, you know, the, the competitive fires there. And I, I, I love it. I absolutely love it. Um, so what recommendations do you have for someone who is new to coaching? 
Oh, this this is a great question. Uh, actually, yeah, I have a I have a bunch of recommendations. Um, the first one, so on approach, what I'd recommend for a new coach, you never want to go in and and like overcomplicate things, especially when you're trying to push strategies and, and setups. Just keep it simple. Um, uh, harness the fundamentals and apply those to players regardless of their experience, but don't be overbearing to try to change everything they do. Just see where you can add tweaks to their playing style to, to make them better and to put them in better places to succeed. And you'll, you'll find out you'll get better response that way. Um, number two, uh, you want to do this immediately. You want to identify who your captains are, and you want to you want to give them full support, and you want to back them up because there'll be times where their leadership at their level will be challenged. But if you if you back them 100%, you can quell all that, and you can it, it for them it's easier for them to do their job if if you back them up because it gives them how can I say it, it gives it gives I don't want to say credibility. It just gives them a little more, a little more power to their decisions. Um, the other one you want to, especially the first year, you want to find that balance. And this is what I was talking about earlier. You want to find a balance of hard work and fun. You want to work hard, but you want to keep it fun as well. You still want the players to be like, oh, it was hard, but we had so much fun, and we just, we just can't wait to get back out there the next practice or the next weekend or whenever you meet. Four, um, as a coach, you're also a teacher. And in your teaching moments, you want to clearly define your how and your why. You want to you wanna get those established right away because there's going to be questions when you explain things and you want to have those answers. You don't want to hesitate on those at all. And number five, this is the most important thing, and this one helped me out a lot first year coaching. Um, your biggest resource is pretty much every other coach in the community. There's not a coach on another team that I haven't known, and if I had a question or if they walked up to me and had a suggestion of tweaks I can make, um, I completely check my ego and I listen to all input, all criticism, and I work on making myself better every day because if people help me out, I'm ultimately helping out my players. And that, to me, that's the most important part is to see them improve. And another, another extra recommendation uh, I would give to a new coach, if you're in an area around an, an MLQ team, push your players at the end of the season towards trying out. That is really good experience, rather you make the roster, rather you make the practice squad, or rather not. It's just great experience to just get in those scrimmages and to get in those tryouts and to play with some of the best players in the world. Like that, that experience right there is just completely valuable. And that would be that would be my big list for recommendations for a new head coach. Yeah, I think those are great. Um, your point, especially about just being willing to talk to those other coaches in the community, I think is huge because, especially in Quidditch. I feel like there is kind of this broader community and even people you don't know. I feel like all the experiences I've had, not necessarily with coaching, but um, just playing in the sport in general, if you just go up and, and take the time to have a conversation with someone, you can really learn a lot. And usually they're pretty 
open and friendly to talking about it too. Oh yes, definitely, definitely. And to me, to me as a coach, I never go into it as I'm having all the answers because there's some positions I've never even considered playing. So you have to reach out and, and, and get those different experiences to just put together a plan to coach that position. Yeah, I definitely agree on the just like doing all you can to play with like, and if you like the going to other MLQ teams, like if you have the opportunity to, to like try and play with those people. Because yes. I know when I was starting, like the ways I got better a lot of the times was getting to play with so many different people at like fantasy tournaments and pickups and all of those like situations where I was playing with different people because when you play with different people you learn different ways to play because not everyone plays the same style as whatever team you're currently on and so it's really great to get that experience of like other people's way to play Quidditch yeah yeah I definitely agree there I've been amazed and I'm absolutely proud of everybody that's put on that uniform and played for Brandeis Quidditch they've done an amazing job at representing the team and just to just to focus and and want to be a better player like you can't ask for a better squad to to coach every every weekend it's it, it's amazing watching each and every one of them develop and grow like it, it's it's been a really 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 fun time for me our last guest for this podcast is is Isabella Leon she started playing at Cal Quidditch for a year um, back in like 2012 and then she played for the California Dobbies for three years and then moved out to Boston um, and joined QCB for a year and then coached QCB for a year as well. She assistant coached for the Boston MLQ team for the last two years and is the head coach um, for the Boston Pandas in this upcoming year, non-playing coach, but yeah. And she also lives with a lovely hedgehog named Easy, who is great. So welcome is, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> His, uh, his full name is Elvis Zion Jablonski, in case you wanted to know. It's a great name for a hedgehog. Yeah, no, he's, he's it is great. a fantastic name. He's, he's pretty cool. Great. So I think the first question we're just going to jump right into is, like, with your experience coaching, how do you balance the different aspects of coaching, specifically individual player development versus on-pitch changes? Uh, cool. Yeah. So I think those are two kind of completely different realms. Um, so player development, I think, is really more in practice, which is tricky in and of itself, especially if you don't have a coaching staff. As a non-playing coach, you get to see a little bit more, uh, which is nice. But it's also, for me specifically, um, I guess a little nerve-wracking just because I like to see things uh, done a few times before I deem it workable or not. And for a lot of players, I guess that would seem annoying a little bit after probably five times of implementing something. But in terms of player development, I really uh, try to at least focus on 
specific players' needs or um, weaknesses. I usually ask people if they want something uh, improved over the season in particular before the season starts or before practice, or I have um, a few players come up to me without me asking them. Um, and then for that practice, I try and focus on that a little bit. But uh, like I said, you, I would recommend <laughs> or I specifically need more than one coach because it's almost impossible to help player development um, on the individual level in addition to implementing like new defenses, offenses, and just making sure that the team is kind of running um, well during the practice. And uh, for on-pitch, similarly, I do not think it's possible um, to be an effective coach without a coaching staff. I've only ever been an assistant coach, and now I'm going to be a head coach, but one of my, I wouldn't say demands, but uh, one of the reasons that I, I did want to work with a group that was a little bit larger was so we can all have eyes on the field, have eyes on individual players, and also keep track of what our ultimate goal is, especially if we're trying to you know, make changes to gameplay in general. Um, so the ideal scenario would be having, I don't know, like a chaser coach, a beater coach, a seeker coach, and then a head coach that would make up a team and everyone would talk together and, and figure it out. Uh, but I haven't, obviously, I don't think anyone has that kind of coaching staff. <laughs> Um, but having at least one or two assistant coaches, even if they're not on the sideline at all times, is, is helpful. That way you can kind of, whenever someone comes off the pitch uh, in the middle of a game, there's someone there to, to talk to them and say, like, you know, positives or something that they need to look out for, while either the head coach or whoever's in charge of making in-game uh, changes would be available to kind of focus on that. Yeah, I think Quidditch, as we all know, has a lot of moving parts, so it's impossible for one person to do it all. Yeah. So what are some like coaching staffs that you've been on? How, what have they been like? Um, can you kind of describe those dynamics? Uh, sure. So it's been kind of like a work in progress, I guess. The first time that I started, I coached QCB, which again is a loose term. It was more a group of people asked me to kind of stay on the sideline and, and keep everyone on track, which is what I tried to do as, as much as possible. I don't, I don't consider that full-on coaching, right? And then it evolved to me helping Harry, uh, which both of us worked together, and Sheldon was also there, so the three of us worked together to kind of figure things out, but it was always following Harry, who's, who was the head coach, um, and helping him out as much as we could and um, helping individual players. And then the following year, I think it was Nick, Greg, and Beckman who were the coaches, and I was helping, which was, I think, a little bit better and easier to manage in terms of numbers, but then there's also just adding more people into a team dynamic in general that you need time to figure out if you gel well or not. So that is, I guess, like a, a work in progress too. Whatever team you're you're on in coaching, you have to make sure that you're all on the same page and on the same sentence of that page <laughs> and make sure that it all works out. And now for hopefully for pandas, if, if the league happens, um, I think I made it very clear that uh, out of the five people that, that are working on it, what everyone's role is, and I think easily defining those and, and making sure everyone plays their role and doesn't really kind of try and step out of that will make it very smooth, just because if you all play a role, then the group kind of wins at the end. I don't know if that answered your question. <laughs> oh, definitely. I think good coaching staffs are underrated in Quidditch. Yeah, especially non-playing ones, in my opinion. Definitely. 
quickly following up with your comments about just having a coaching staff, are there kind of coaching roles that you particularly enjoy filling more so than maybe others? Uh, yeah, I love player development. Honestly, I love being able to help someone out uh, in a specific practice or, or whatever. Um, let's say someone wants to learn how to go to their left more or uh, a lot of people struggle to see their left uh, field of vision a little bit more than their right uh, and making sure that I, I check in on them and, and do that kind of stuff. It, it, uh, it brings me joy, I guess, <laughs> to be able to call that out and help them improve. Uh, so there's that. <laughs> then there's, uh, yeah, I don't know, I just, uh, seeing people improve and, and really kind of work towards a goal that they have in mind is nice to see in general, and being able to help them achieve a goal that they want is the most fulfilling. Um, then I guess a close second would just be uh, teaching plays in general. <laughs> that one is the most fun to see an idea kind of come to life, um, but it's probably the most frustrating part of coaching Quidditch at yeah. this time. <laughs> yeah. So what recommendations would you have for someone who's new to coaching? Yeah. I mean, if you've ever been a captain uh, of any organized athletic team, um, I think you already have a good shot at understanding the dynamic, I guess. In Quidditch in particular, you always have that weird middle ground of being a playing coach. Um, so if you're being a playing coach, I just think the biggest piece of advice I can give you is start small. Stop biting off way more than you can chew. It's really hard for you to manage a team and then see yourself in that as well. And to take yourself out of a coaching mindset into a player mindset for even, you know, a three minute, whatever, how much time you're on the field to come back out and see how that impacted uh, either the defense or the offense or the other team's reaction. That's, that's really hard to do, right? So for playing coaches, I don't really have too much advice because I remove myself from that. Um, but for non-playing coaches, I think get yourself uh, an assistant coach that you know will balance you out. And that way, the two of you can really kind of get ideas on paper, draw things out. And the more harmonious it is, then the easier it is to catch pitfalls and have a productive conversation. It's better to get someone that has a slightly different point of view than you, uh, because it's easy to get into a hyping up session. If you think up of a good play and someone else is kind of on the same wavelength as you, and they're like, yeah, it's totally going to work. And then, you know, it doesn't because you forget everything, like Peter. It's yeah. a terrible, terrible situation. <laughs> Peter's just ruin everything, don't they? <laughs> no, 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 they're great. There are saving grace. It's fine. Uh, but, yeah, those are, those are the pieces of advice I would give. And just, yeah, just have a clear goal in mind and really stick to that one goal so your team can follow that. If you have more than one goal uh, and you're, it's your first time coaching, you're going to be very overwhelmed and you're probably going to end up with a team that doesn't necessarily follow suit because they can't read your mind. All right. Thanks again to all of our guests. We really appreciate the opportunity to get to speak with you all. Yeah. Um, and some things that we actually didn't get to cover in some of our interviews and ended up talking more with some of our guests, uh, we just wanted to bring up before closing out this episode, um, one important aspect of coaching that came up kind of in a, a post-interview conversation was actually talking about handling referees in Quidditch. Um, we talked to Azim and he mentioned how 
it's really easy to kind of get caught up in the heat of the moment and maybe yell at referees or or get really upset but the more you can try and just stay calm and remember that there are volunteers out there um just kind of like the rest of everyone helping to to make sure these quidditch games run um and it also just sets a great example to your team if you're able to stay calm and just take in whatever either things that you see as missed calls or things that don't go your way um, and be able to handle them on the fly because i mean that's kind of what the team sport is all about is handling the the unexpected in a lot of ways yeah exactly they are there as volunteers so we got to respect them um additionally during my intro for jamie i forgot to mention that she has two delightful cats lyra who's very cute and small and finnick who is large and fluffy um, and so this kind of ties into a bit that we're going to do for all of our guests. We want to get to know any animals in their lives. So that's just something that if we're having someone on the podcast, we're going to include. Yeah, I think we both, Emily and I both agree that animals are, are an important part of our lives. And so we just want to share about our guest animals as well. Um, I personally have uh, two little dogs uh, named Sirius and Lupin. Um, yes, they are, in fact, named after Harry Potter characters. I have three cats and one dog. The dog's name is Gemma, and she's a golden doodle. And she's kind of a monster sometimes, but I love her a lot. And then <laughs> <laughs> the cats are Yang, who is a grumpy old man. Um, Simon, who is a tripod. He only has three legs, but he... He just failed a deck save one day. He's still very athletic. Hmm. Um, and then <laughs> Sunny, who is an absolute ball of fluff and who you can follow on Instagram at selfcaresunny um, with an O, not a U. Definitely, definitely go check that account out. Um, yeah, and with that, um, thanks uh, especially to our producer, Nick Jablonski um, and Christina Gooks, who created the music that you hear for the intro and outro of this podcast. Yeah, and please remember to submit any questions that you want us to discuss in the form linked in the post. We will also accept submissions for guests through this uh, form as well. So if you want to be on the podcast, let us know that way. Yeah, so definitely please reach out and even just continue the conversation with us. We'd love to hear from you. Yeah, so thanks again for listening. Uh, This has been the second episode of The Beat and... Uh, We can't wait to talk to you next time.